Good morning, Grace Vineyard, and everyone else joining us, listening to this talk for our website or YouTube channel. Uh, you're very welcome, and I hope this short series we're going through on the Sermon on the Mount is an encouragement to you. And if this is your first time joining us, you are very welcome. Thanks for being with us. And you can find all of the previous talks in this series and much more on our website and our YouTube channel. My name is Mark Stoneham, and I'm on the teaching team here at Grace Vineyard. Uh, being a Christian isn't easy. As, and as we walk this road with God that he plan, has planned for us, we continually have to make a choice. Are we going to do things God's way or are we going to go our own way? And therefore, we daily need to come before God and ask him to speak to us and lead us, listen to what he says and put it into practice. Which brings us nicely uh, to the last in our short series in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. And today I'm going to look at the last section of Matthew 7, the house on the rock, and hopefully tie it all together. So let's pray. Dear Lord, speak to us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Encourage us as we seek to follow your instruction for living as individuals and as your church communities here in Purley and wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our reading, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its own foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is a very familiar passage of the Bible. Many of us through Sunday school or school assemblies even as children will know the song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. And these few verses are one of the most familiar parables or stories that Jesus told during his life on earth. The symbolism is very clear. If we hear and act on what Jesus teaches, we are wise. If, however, we hear but ignore what Jesus says, we're foolish. And we so easily take passages like this out of context and see them as little sound bites from the Bible. But these few verses are more than just one of Jesus' stories. They're the closing statement of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes. And then through the next three chapters, Jesus goes on to teach through all the areas that provide the firm foundation he says we need if we're going to survive the storms of life and still be standing and following him at the end. Two weeks ago, Mark Visser looked at chapter 5 and focused on being salt and light. And last week, Joe Sutton looked at chapter 6 and focused on what it really means to follow Jesus as opposed to trying to impress others. The Sermon on the Mount comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if we look at chapter 4, Jesus has come from his testing in the desert. He hears that John the Baptist has been arrested and begins to teach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He starts to heal the sick and large crowds from all over Judea began to gather wherever he goes. So he goes up on a mountainside and begins to teach his disciples and the crowd sit down and listen in. So that's the background to where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first recorded teaching Jesus gave, which ends with this passage we just read in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. And this morning, like the crowd, we get to listen in 
on what Jesus taught about how we should live. So verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Notice that first word there, therefore. Therefore is a very important word in theological terms. It signals an important transition and it highlights to Jesus' hearers that he wants them to take notice. Therefore, after all that I've just been saying, if you've heard and understood and act on these principles, you are wise and your life will be as strong as if it's built on solid rock. So we know that Jesus wants to get their attention and to emphasise the importance of what they and we need to understand so that so what words of mine is Jesus referring to? Well, the words of mine Jesus is referring them to and us are the whole of the previous three chapters of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. So as I said, to tie it all together, let's do a quick rundown um, of what Jesus said prior to the House on the Rock parable. In Matthew 5, he talked about the Beatitudes. Who were the blessed in God's kingdom? and is in God's economy. He talked about salt and light. We are salt and light to the world and, and we're to bring God's kingdom values. And if you want more detail on that, that's what Mark talked about in his talk on the 9th of August. So go have a listen to that. The film, he talked about the fulfillment of the law. Jesus says it all stands and he sums up the law and the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22, uh, 37 to 40, like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. He talks about murder, he talks about adultery. Uh, and you know, murder isn't just something that we have to be aware of, it's calling our brother a fool. And we're in danger of the fire of hell if we do so. And again, it's not just a physical act of adultery, but, but just looking and daydreaming that's an issue. Very difficult to be a follower of Jesus sometimes, isn't it? I remember when Chris and I had been married just a year, and we're on a holiday in Corfu, coming to the realisation that marriage meant that I couldn't go out with any other girls anymore. I'd had 20 or more girlfriends before Chris and I got together, and it hit me on that holiday, one year into our marriage, that my life had changed forever. I couldn't chase after any girl I was attracted to anymore. And there were a lot of attractive girls on those beaches in Corfu, let me tell you. And I realised that the issue was that was surfacing was that I was missing the chase and the excitement of, of young love. Uh, and when things went a bit stale, I just went and found somebody else and started the adventure all over again. So I had to make a choice and make good on the promises that I'd made to Chris and to God on my wedding day. And, and I love her and God more now than ever. And we have had to work hard over the past 37 years to build the marriage that we have. And I've had to work hard in my relationship with Jesus in the same way. Jesus, Jesus also talks about divorce. And he's very blunt here. And he says that remarrying is adultery in his eyes. And I, and I think the point is don't treat marriage lightly. The marriage relationship isn't a fashion accessory, as, as, as so many celebrities seem to treat it. And I'm not making any judgments here on people who are, who are divorced because I understand that there are many different circumstances that may make divorce necessary. But what I think we need to realise is that as Christians, we need to be different from our culture. And remember that in the cultural context that Jesus was speaking into, divorce was as easy as just writing your wife a letter. 
He talked about oaths, don't swear on the Bible, but yet your yes be yes and your no be no. He talked about an eye for an eye, about not taking revenge uh, and turning the other cheek and loving our enemies and praying for those who hurt us. And then in Matthew 6, he talks about giving to the need, uh, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. And the basic point of all three is don't make a big song and dance of it to make yourself look good and spiritual. He talks about treasuring heaven, looking to eternity, not tomorrow. Can't serve God and money. He talks about not worrying. And again, Joe into much more detail uh, in her talk last week. So, so have a listen to that as well. This is very different from the way of life in our culture, isn't it? Now, in the big financial recession in the early 90s, I was, I was a building inspector, as I am again now. Uh, and I was also running a design business on the side, doing drawings and calculations for extensions, lock conversions, etc. Our daughter Jo was three and Chris was pregnant with our son Craig. But there I was working all day, then coming home, throwing my dinner down my neck and then spending most evenings and weekends doing surveys and drawings. At first it was great, we had, we had extra money to spend. But then the recession started, builders stopped paying me and the problems started to come. And I began to worry about what was going to happen. And I remember going to a Care for the Family Day conference around October 1990, and God really challenged me on my priorities. And God led me to this, this, this uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Do not worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your, bo your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? But seek first his kingdom, verse 33 and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I came to the conclusion that God was asking me to close my business down, trust him for what we needed, and spend more time with my wife and family. But there was a problem. I had spent all the money we'd earned up to that point and I had the tax man over £2,000. And we had other bills to pay as well. So I had to make a choice. Was I going to trust God to provide and, or try to make things work my, my own way? So I spoke to Chris uh, and she'd been feeling the same. So we decided God was telling us to close the business. Uh, and so we prayed that God would meet our financial needs. And guess what? Nothing happened. <laughs> we didn't get a big check to pay the bills. So we prayed some more and then some very helpful uh, person at a church suggested that we lay out all the bills on the table and lay our hands on them and pray that God would provide the money to pay them. So we did and the next day when the post came I eagerly opened each envelope but again no big check, instead there was another bill for over £300. I remember crying out to God and saying I'm doing what you asked, now we need you to come through for us. And as time went by, God did, but he was teaching us a lesson. And God came through first through my accountant, who by closing the business was able to write off half my tax bill. And then in the January of 1991, when the tax needed to be paid, two different people, um, God told two different people to give us £500, which covered the remaining £1,000. But it was an agonising three months waiting and trusting God. And these words of Jesus about treasure in heaven and don't worry are very relevant to the situation in the world today. 
With the coronavirus still spreading and taking lives, thousands losing their jobs, businesses going bankrupt and governments running up billions in national debt. And the plight of the Eurozone before the virus hit was bad enough, with Brexit, Spain, Greece and other countries in serious financial difficulty and many other problems. But isn't this where greed and selfishness have brought the world's economy? But Jesus tells us God has a different economy. And back and now on to Matthew 7. And Jesus talks about judging others, asking, seeking, knocking, the narrow and wide gates, true and false prophets, trees and their fruits. I'm not going to go into any more detail about these, as you can read them all for yourselves later. And I would encourage you to read these three chapters a few times to grasp what Jesus says. Because he was turning the values of their culture and society upside down and saying there's another way to live, God's way. And these things will turn our values and culture upside down if we live this way. And we need to hear this because the world we know has changed forever. We hear a lot about the new normal, don't we, whatever that is. But everything has changed. And my prayer is that we, as the followers of Jesus, will be the sort and light that Jesus says we should be and show the world a different way of living. Jesus' way of living, God's way of living, like the early church did in Acts. The church today faces a massive challenge. So how are we going to meet it? Well, the upcoming Connect group course, Mission Shaped Living, has been chosen to help equip us to do so. So please sign up uh, and join one of the Connect groups for that course. Anyway, let's get back to our passage and leave the troubles of the world behind for the moment. Uh, back to our parable, uh, Matthew 7.24, the wise and foolish builders. The Sermon on the Mount is therefore very important for us to grasp. Philip Greenslade puts, puts it in his book, Voice from the Hills, this way. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' user manual for discipleship. When I was 17, I bought my first car. It was a metallic bronze Mark I Ford Escort. It was beautiful. So to learn how to look after it and maintain it, one of the first things I did was to go and buy a Haynes manual, which explains in great detail how every part of the car works and is put together and comes apart and everything else. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's Jesus' manual for living. And Philip Greenslade goes on to say that in this parable, Jesus is declaring that human destiny is determined by a response to his words. Well, that's, that's powerful, isn't it? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' user manual for discipleship. And this passage about the house on the rock and the house on the sand and how we react to it is a, a declaration that human destiny is determined by a response to Jesus' words. So Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But what about the opposite response? Well, everyone who hears these words of mine but doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Hearing isn't enough. In fact, if all we do is hear Jesus, what Jesus says Sunday by Sunday and in Connect Group without doing anything to put Jesus' words into practice, Action doesn't just make us foolish, it makes us worse than we were before. And here, Philip Greenslade quotes Dal Bruner. And Dal Bruner says, The house that crashes is a house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to hear, 
but not realistic enough to live. Let me read that again. The house that crashes is a house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to hear, but not realistic enough to live. James 1, 22-25 says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now James was the brother of Jesus and I think James is reminding his intended readers of Jesus' words in Matthew 7. And James is pointing out that it's not enough to simply know the Bible or godly teaching, again hearing what is taught on Sunday or, or going to Christian conferences, it, it just doesn't cut it. Knowledge alone is useless, even worse than useless. And anyone who, who thinks that knowing the Bible makes them holy or righteous is deceiving themselves. Back to Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 verse 20, Jesus says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees knew the words of the scripture backwards, forwards and sideways, but they didn't know the God who'd written them. So what about the two houses? Verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on rock. And the house on the sand, well, the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Notice where the storms come. The storms, floods, and wind blow on both houses. They come against the wise and the foolish, and troubles come comes to everyone's life, whether we have the best relationship with Jesus, whether we're following him and doing everything he tells us or not. But it's only then that we find out where our foundations really are. The first time I spoke at Grace Vineyard, I shared a bit about our background and our, our attempt at church planting. In 2010, we'd been released to plant in Bromley in Kent. And after nearly 28 years of marriage in April 2011, we encountered the biggest storm we have ever faced as a couple. And it wasn't about infidelity or money or gambling or drinking or anything like that. It was about following God and his call on our lives to church plant. In 2010, we had bought a house in Bromley, sold ours, and were at the point of exchange of contracts when the credit crunch took my only work. At that time, I was a freelance IT consultant. So we had to had no income, and we had to make the hard decision to pull out of the move, which was devastating. And we had to learn all over again, not to worry, but to seek God's kingdom and trust that he would provide. So we soldiered on and started to plant Bromley Vineyard. Then in April 2011, we looked to move to Bromley a second time. We sold a house again and started to look at houses. Well, after we looked at probably the first house we went to see, we came home and Chris was quiet. So I knew something was up. So I sort of asked very tentatively what the matter was. You know, what's the matter, love? And she said, nothing. And I knew that wasn't the case. I knew something was wrong. So I said, something's the matter. What's on your mind? And she just replied, you don't want to know. Well, I pressed her, and, I, and I, sometimes I wish I hadn't, uh, and, and it just seemed like the floodgates opened, and she was, she was right. I didn't want to hear what she had to say next. 
She said she didn't want to move. She didn't want to live in Bromley. She didn't feel right about church planting in Bromley. And in fact, and this was the, the killer, actually she didn't want a church plant at all. And I was confused because we've been working towards this for 13 years and, and planning and planting Bromley for three years. And I thought Chris had completely lost it. And I felt like my whole life was falling apart. Well, we spoke some more and I began to argue with her and started to shout in frustration. It, it wasn't pretty and it wasn't loving. and I'm not very proud of, of how I was back then at that point in time. I ended up sort of storming out of the house and driving up to Fyden Down, which is an open common near us, and sitting in my car shouting at God and crying and asking him, why was this happening? What was going on? It was the biggest bust up we'd ever had and we seemed to be as far apart as it was possible to be. Well over the next few days we spoke and I shouted some more and slowly I began to listen and hear what Chris was trying to explain. That she'd gone along with Bromley and church planted because I thought it was the right thing to do and she didn't, but she didn't feel the same, but she didn't want to say anything because she didn't want to hurt me or pull me away from what I felt God was calling us to. But she said she realised that selling her house this time was going to be the point of no return. And had we moved, she felt it would end up destroying our marriage. So she had to tell me how she really felt and be honest and face the consequences, whatever they may be. Well, I began to ask God if we got Bromley wrong. And slowly, with our vineyard coach's help, we began to work things through. And although at the start it felt like this storm might destroy us, We've come through it and our relationship is the strongest it's ever been. And we've worked through lots of other things since then. Um, so why have I just shared all that with you? Well, it's to say that what got us through this storm and every other storm we faced and will get us through all the other storms we'll face through the rest of our lives is that our foundation as a couple, as individuals and our marriage is built on Jesus, the rock and him alone. And I'm sure we have all faced many storms in our lives and we will face many before our time is done. But the key to surviving them is to build our life and hope and continue to build them on the foundation, which is Jesus, the rock. In Isaiah 43, there's a wonderful promise about surviving storms and trials. And I think in Matthew 7, Jesus is reflecting Isaiah 43 and God's amazing love towards those who follow him. He says this, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God. And I'm slightly paraphrased, leave a little bits out. For you are precious and honoured in my sight, and I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. What an amazing promise. Lance Pitluck, uh, the retired pastor of Anaheim Vineyard, he just retired a couple of years ago, and um, he said this, In all of life, it's about turning towards Jesus, not away. Whatever is happening, Jesus is totally capable of handling whatever we are dealing with, be it joy, sadness, anger, he is totally there for you. The only thing we must not do is turn away from him because this only leaves us on our own to do things on our own. I'm going to read that again. In all of life, it's about turning towards Jesus and not away. Whatever is happening, 
Jesus is totally capable of handling whatever we are dealing with, be it joy, sadness, anger. He is totally there for you. The only thing we must not do is to turn away from him because this only leaves us on our own to do things on our own. And that's not a good place to be because that's when we're on the sand and when things come crashing down around us. The last thing I want to note from this parable is that after the storm and the wind and the waves, the house on the rock stands. And that reminds me of Ephesians 6.13. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. All God is asking us to do is stand firm in him, to hear what he says and put it into practice. It's our choice. So in conclusion, as I said at the beginning, as we walk this road with God, we continually have to make a choice. Are we going to do things God's way or are we going to go our own way? And therefore we daily need to come before God and ask him to speak to us and lead us in his way. In Galatians 5, 13 to 26, Paul gives us some great advice. And this is from the New Living Translation, the UK version, because I love the way that this is written. Unfortunately, you can't get this version anymore as you get a second hand one. Um, just an aside. And this is what it said. So I advise you to live according to your new life in the Holy Spirit. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is just op opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other and your choices are never free from this conflict. Now, initially that might sound a bit hard to take. Um, and what's the point? But I, I think what Paul was talking about, he was talking out of experience and he knew that we will face temptations and problems and there will be conflict and storms, but we have a choice. And even if we fall flat on our face and make the wrong choice, we can come back to God in repentance and next time round we can choose God's way and choose to build on the rock and not the sand. So the closing statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is crucial for us if we're going to survive the storms of life. It's Jesus' manual for discipleship. And, and human destiny, our destiny, is determined by our response to his words. So just verse 24 of chapter 7, one final time. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Let's allow God to reveal to us if there are any areas of our lives where we are hearing him but choosing to ignore him and what he's telling us. Because we know this will end in a big crash. Instead, let's choose to do things his way in everything that we do and build our lives on the rock. And that rock is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for this manual for living the way that you want us to. It's different from the way the world lives. But Lord, help us to live the way that you call us to. Give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to follow your guidance and help us to live by your principles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.